Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, it's our annual end-of-the-year episode, where we look back at the year that was and look ahead to the year that will be. This time around, we are so lucky to be joined by two of the smartest minds in energy and environmental policy, Catherine Wolfram, a visiting professor at Harvard's Kennedy School, and John Larson, a partner at the Rhodium Group. Today's episode is a little longer than our usual fare, but I promise it won't disappoint. Catherine and John offer deep insights into the most important, interesting, and overlooked issues from this truly extraordinary year in energy and environmental policy, markets, and geopolitics. Stay with us. Catherine Wolfram and John Larson, it is a pleasure to have you on Resources Radio. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much. Nice to be with you. Thanks for having me. So both of you are new to the show, which is, um, we're really thrilled to have you have you on. Uh, but we always ask our guests uh, to help us understand how they became interested in energy or environmental issues, either at a young age or later in life. So maybe let's start with Catherine. Catherine, how did you sort of get inspired to work on these topics? Um, sure. So I, I guess thinking back on my childhood, I realized that I probably should have become an environmentalist at a very young age. I grew up in Minnesota, um, the land of 10,000 lakes, and there was a a lake nearby where we'd go for swimming. Um, But every week or so, there would be this like disgusting green three-inch thick layer of algae. So, you know, sometimes we'd show up and we just couldn't go swimming. And I had some vague sense that it was related to agricultural runoff. Um, so, you know, we'd be annoyed, but looking back on it, I wonder if I should have been like more concerned when the runoff went away, what, what they were doing exactly to make it go away. Um, but, you know, definitely kind of thinking back on my, my childhood in the seventies, the there were a lot of environmental risks that I was exposed to. Um, but but I guess in general, I got to environmental issues from the energy side of things. I've, I've always been interested in like kind of the, the basic way things work and infrastructure. And so started working on the electricity sector and just interested in how that powers the economy, powers our houses, um, all of those things. But, you know, I worked on the electricity sector right out of college. I eventually worked for the Department of Public Utilities as a regulator and really realized that you couldn't understand the energy industries without thinking about the environment. And and I think vice versa, the energy industries are so important to all of our our, um, environmental issues that that it's you know, re- really two things that go hand in hand. Um, and so have have been interested in environmental issues for, you know, the past 15, 20 years. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I didn't realize you were from Minnesota. So you're the second Catherine energy economist from Minnesota we've had on the show. And I'm thinking about Katie Hausman <laughs> here as a, a friend and also from Minnesota. Yeah, that's right. She's from northern Minnesota. Yeah, yep. yeah. Great. Uh, John, how about you? How did you end up working in, in this field? So growing up, uh, I grew up on an island uh, and uh, was, you know, at an early age, very, I think, you know, the the finite resource questions and kind of conservation and protection of uh, special places was a big thing that was just right 
in front of me growing up. Um, and, you know, at the time I didn't immediately become a fervent environmentalist or anything, but just, you know, uh, it was very much, uh, all around me kind of both, the um, how important the environment is to what makes a place a place, but also the limits and resources available there. And then also development pressures and other factors that can affect that. Um, and then, Later on, I went to actually college for music and very quickly realized there was no way I was going to do that professionally and have a job and dropped out of college. Uh, and in the course of that year, uh, kind of learned something about myself, which was that I wanted to do work that I felt good about doing and kind of went back to school for environmental science and went from there towards uh, the biggest environmental problem I could find, which was climate change. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's been my path. Yeah. Well, John, we're going to have to talk more after the show because I was a music major in undergrad and then decided to do something else with my life and now, uh, work on energy and environmental topics. So I'd love to hear more about uh, your path as well. Sure. Yeah. It's a popular path. We have another person on the team at Rhodium with a similar, um, similar story, which is oh, fantastic. kind of interesting. Yeah. We should start a, a band maybe. Yeah. There you um, go. <laughs> all right. So um, let's talk now about the year that we've all uh, just been through 2022. It's been really an extraordinary year for energy and environmental policy and geopolitics and all sorts of other stuff. Um, so I'd love for each of you to just get us started by highlighting what you see as the most significant uh, domestic policy development for this year. And probably the answer is obvious. Like, Probably it's the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, so I wonder if you think that is the case, and if so, why? And if not, why not? So, uh, John, why don't we start with you? What would you sort of point to as the highlight of the year domestically? Yeah, I mean, I I would agree it's the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, there have been, you know, one could argue multiple decades of effort to try and get major clean energy and climate legislation through Congress, and that happened in this year in 2022. So I think that uh, kind of uh, overcomes any other contenders for uh, the biggest development, but uh, not just because of its you know historical significance. But then on top of that, I think what the IRA does uh, for clean energy in the United States uh, for the next decade is make all of the technologies that we need to decarbonize the energy system uh, cheap and so you know there's kind of I think people are going to look back and say, well, there was the way the energy markets worked before 2022, and then there's the way they worked afterwards, because one of the major barriers to clean energy deployment cost is now basically not a factor, um, at least for the foreseeable future. And uh, that's going to uh, mean you know meaningful progress on greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. I mean, our, our work at Rhodium Group finds by 2030, the U.S. emissions could be down to 32 to 42% below 2005 levels, which is a major departure from what would have happened without the IRA and, uh, and a major departure from historical decarbonization trends. And so I think it's uh, really exciting moving forward. And it's all, you know, because of Congress uh, this year. Yeah, really interesting. Um, Catherine, how about you? Uh, would you point to the Inflation Reduction Act as well? And, um, you know, or like, what do you think is interesting about it? What, what do you want to highlight? Yeah, certainly. I would I would point to the Inflation Reduction Act as well. And 
I have um, gotten a lot of use out of rhodium and, and other modelers like rhodium and thinking about what the, the potential impacts could be for the U.S. emissions. Um, so totally, totally defer to John on that and, and huge props for all the work that they've done. I guess the only thing I would add is I think that this has really changed the tenor of the international conversations around climate change. You know, I think there have been a lot of our allies, a lot of the rest of the world, frankly, that were kind of wary of us and didn't really know whether they could trust the the U.S. legislative system to deliver. Um, you know, the Senate didn't ratify Kyoto. Trump pulled us out of the Paris Climate Agreement. So I think, you know, understandably, they had questions about what we could do and the fact that that the U.S. Um, Congress passed this major climate legislation really signals that that we are here, we're back, we're, you know, we're, we're ready to tackle this important um, existential problem. So I think going forward, it's it's such a big deal that it's going to have impacts, um, you know, on the macro economy, potentially on, on our fiscal situation. But it's it's a it's a you know massive massive task and and those impacts we should expect. Um, but you know I think there are impacts beyond just the the, the climate impacts. Right, for sure. And um, you know, Catherine, your point uh, reminds me of what I think is an interesting element of the bill. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but my sense is that uh, the way the IRA uses tax credits. Um, it, it essentially kind of cements things in place for the next 10 years or so, right? It can't easily be rolled back. Is that correct? I mean, it does cement things in place. I think, you know, whether if there were in some hypothetical situation, you know, a, a, a Republican 57 Senate seat majority and, and a Republican controlled House. I think they could probably change the tax code and and undo it, but I I do think, and you know I'm I'm not the only one who's made these prognostications that that's very unlikely to happen, um, especially the fact that a lot of the development that John was describing is likely to happen in red states. You know, a lot of the the wind and solar potential is in the middle of the country, so I I think that it's it's unlikely to be rolled back and. Yeah, the, the developers that I've talked to having that kind of certainty that, that the tax credits are are there for the next 10 years, um, it's it's important to their kind of planning horizons and, and their investment decisions. Right. Great. Okay, so um so IRA clearly um you know tops the list here domestically. Um let's look outside the United States and Catherine, you've already spoken to the significance of the IRA outside of the US, but I'm hoping uh, each of you can, you know, highlight something else uh, that's happened outside of the US that you think is particularly important or interesting this year. And again, maybe the answer here is obvious, maybe it's uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the effects that's had on geopolitics and energy markets. But uh, I'd just love to hear your reflection on that topic or another one of your choosing. So let's start with Catherine this time. Catherine, what would you point to outside the U.S.? Yeah, sure. Um, again, I certainly agree that it, it's Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That's been the major energy topic um, internationally this year. I guess I would highlight a couple dimensions of the invasion that I think are, are worth noting. 
Um, first of all, there, there are definitely the short run impacts that the invasion is having on um, energy markets. So especially natural gas markets for the European Union, they've experienced natural gas prices that are several multiples of, of where they have been. So that's really remarkable. People's utility bills went up by a lot. Companies' utilities bills went up by a lot. And I think you know, that the good news story out of this has been that the EU has really stuck together and figured out how to import more liquefied natural gas, how to get some liquefaction plants up and running in record time. And and they really haven't kind of disintegrated or, or caved under this pressure from, from Putin. Um, Outside natural gas, there's the the price cap on Russian oil. This is something that I was part of at Treasury, and I, I think it's it's really a a novel approach to sanctioning. Super quickly, it's designed to reduce Russia's revenue from oil without using a, a full scale embargo. Um, so Russia's just such a big oil producer that some of the measures we've used in the past against like Iran and, and Venezuela to sanction them just won't work with with Russia. Um, and so there was the, the need for, for something like the price cap. 2023, there'll be more to watch on the price cap when, when it starts applying to uh, petroleum products and not just crude, but, but so far it, 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 it's working as planned. So that's great. And I think, you know, those are kind of the, the things that happened in 2022. I think in the long run, like both thinking about the natural gas markets in the European Union, thinking about the price cap, I think it kind of bodes pretty well for our ability to get a bunch of countries together to think about how they want to consume energy and how they want to solve energy problems. So, you know, I think in, in the short term, you might not think that there's that big a link between um, the invasion and, and climate change, but I do think on kind of an international diplomatic level that there's a good kind of path that's that's being set here. Um, and I think, you know, again, in the long run, the invasion is, is just another reminder of how dependent our economies are on energy. So the fact that Putin is targeting the electricity grid explicitly in Ukraine and, and trying to kind of terrorize people by freezing them and turning the lights off. I think it just really reminds us how important things like energy reliability are. Um, and, you know, finally, it's just emphasized an additional reason that we don't like fossil fuels, that, that they're controlled by by autocrats like Putin, um, and so kind of an, another another incentive to move away from from fossil fuels. Mm. Yeah, really interesting points, um, John. How about you? What would you point to outside of the U.S.? Uh, sure. So I I agree that the Russia invasion of Ukraine is definitely the biggest outside the U.S. story on energy in 2022. And uh, and I think Catherine gave a really important rundown of a lot of the factors that make it so. Um, maybe just to add a couple, one uh, is the elevated prices in Europe that Catherine was describing um, effectively get uh, energy markets to the same place in Europe as the IRA does in the United States, just through a different path. What I mean by that is the IRA in the U.S. makes all the clean energy way cheaper than the fossil through subsidies. 
in Europe, all the fossil is now way more expensive because of the war and resource, you know, constraints, and which makes all the clean energy a no-brainer. Um, and I think that so long as that dynamic hangs, even 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 in a more moderated sense going forward, uh, you're going to see a, a big acceleration of clean energy investment in Europe because of uh, as a response to the war, both for energy security reasons and just for by virtue of the market signals. Um, in a way that, uh, you know, this is sort of what we need for the U.S. and the EU and the world to decarbonize is more favorable market environments for clean energy. And uh, between the dynamic in the U.S. and in Europe, those are, um, you know, happening together. Uh, coincidentally, it's going to be a really big um, accelerator for clean energy deployment. And then I'll just want add one other small point, which is, the, the European market dynamics that Catherine described do have reverberations for the United States, right? So we have elevated fossil fuel prices here this year because of the war, both for oil and for natural gas. And that, so long as that hangs around for a little while, that's going to amplify the IRA impacts um, by creating a bigger differential between clean energy and fossil. And, I, you know, even if it's orders of magnitude smaller than the European situation, um, it is still meaningful. Um, to the economics of clean energy in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah, those are all great points. And uh, I can't help but just uh, offer a couple other, I think, complementary thoughts um, that are related to, to the points you both make. And, you know, one of them is I think people have been pointing to, you know, coal plants coming back online in Europe as uh, some kind of sign that um, that the opposite, John, of what you're saying is happening. But my sense is that that's very much a short-term thing to kind of get out of the immediate crisis and that in the long term, the sort of economics of moving to clean energy are like clearer than ever. Um, and then the other thought that I had as you were talking about the interplay between European and domestic U.S. markets is the boon to uh, LNG exporters in the U.S. I mean, the sort of rents that they've been extracting from uh, those cargoes uh, heading over to Europe have just been enormous and really incentivizing, you know, new drilling and production, especially near the Gulf Coast. Um, but yeah, great points. John, did you want to uh, say anything about that coal point I made? Uh, only that I, I agree it's probably a short-term response, you know, for reliability reasons and keeping the lights on. I, I would say you've also seen some other interesting choices and 180s on the nuclear front in some some countries as well for the exact same reasons, right? And so, um, you know, the emissions implications in the near term might even be a wash between the nuclear and the coal. It's a little hard to say yet. But, uh, you know, I think Europe as a whole has been pretty clear that any near-term actions are strictly on an energy security uh, basis and that their climate targets are still very much uh, top of mind. I would just chime in on the natural gas point as well. I, I think that's right. And I think we're going to see that more and more. I think the U.S. is going to become more and more integrated with the rest of the the world with as we build more LNG export capabilities. I, I guess I, I have to make the economist point, though. I, I mean, I agree completely higher natural gas and coal prices are helping with the clean energy transition. I think Unfortunately, the beneficiaries of those higher natural gas and coal prices are Russia, you know, Qatar, the, the owners of the, the fossil fuel, whereas with carbon pricing, we get to raise prices and, and benefit from some of the, um, you know, the, the, the tax on the fuel, the, the 
revenues flow to the, the government rather than flowing to the, the fossil fuel companies. Right. Yeah. Great point. Great point. Um, so we've been talking about these, you know, huge earth shaking, um, globe changing events, uh, for the last 10 or 15 minutes. Um, and we've very much been talking about the things that have been in the news, uh, over the last year. I'm wondering if each of you now can point to a topic that you think is really important, but that you think hasn't gotten as much attention as it should over the last year or so. Anything that, that you want to point to? Catherine, why don't we start with you? Sure. Um, so, you know, this is kind of related to the Inflation Reduction Act, but I think we're seeing a lot more attention being paid to trade and environment issues. So, like coming out of the IRA, the European Union, South Korea, they're not very happy about some of the domestic content components of, of IRA. So, just to be specific, some of the tax credits have adders that companies can only qualify for if, if they use domestically produced steel, for instance, or, or batteries, or for the electric vehicle subsidies, they're only available for U.S. manufactured cars. So companies like Hyundai and VW are, are upset about that because they make electric vehicles. Um, and similarly, the, the Korean and, and German governments are upset. Um, and at the same time, the European Union is pursuing a, a carbon border adjustment mechanism to level the playing field their companies are are paying carbon prices through the European Union's emission trading system. And so I think there there are going to be some kind of fundamental issues that the U.S. is taking this approach of subsidizing clean energy. A lot of other countries are taking the approach of taxing brown energy. Like companies would understandably much rather be in a country where they're being subsidized, but not every country can afford to take the subsidy path. So I think like how these different approaches to climate mitigation interact with one another, you know, I think that the positive view is that like trade and environment issues will force some important conversations between the big emitters and and will come to some agreement and and kind of harmonize on ambition and solve the trade issues. I think the the negative view is that this is going to be kind of the centrifugal force that that undoes some of the international ambitions around climate change. So I definitely think it's something that that is already coming up, but something we'll need to be paying close attention to going forward. Yeah, that's such an interesting point. And, um, and it'll be really fascinating to watch it play out this year and for years to come, I'm sure. Uh, John, how about you? What's something that you think has been a little under the radar that you think is particularly important? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, one thing that comes to mind, and this this is a little bit of log rolling, but it benefits RFF too, so I'm going to mention it, is um, <laughs> uh, the updated social cost of carbon that came out um, alongside the reproposal of the oil and gas methane rule last month. Uh, ha- well, I mean, there's a lot of things you one could mention, um, but you know, first of all, social cost of carbon is a approach to valuing the avoided damages of climate change, and then that gets folded into cost benefit analyses on federal regulations and quantifies the the benefits of taking on those new regulatory actions um, through the amount of emission reductions uh, those regulations catalyze. And it's been an area of debate for over a decade. Uh, first got imposed in the Obama administration. Um, when President Biden came in, he reinstated the number 
at around $51 a ton, um, which was much, much, much higher than what had been used during the Trump administration. Um, but, but why I bring it up now is that, you know, it's uh, the EPA in their um, regulatory proposal included this uh, new revised set of numbers, which come in around $190 a ton. So 3x and then some more than the previous number. Uh, and that reflects a lot of new science, new methods of quantifying damages, uh, new analytical tools and capabilities that have been pioneered by places like the Climate Impact Lab, of which the Roding Group is a part of, but also, you know, your colleagues at Resources for the Future and others. And I think, you know, I just want to recognize all of the years and years and years of work and research that contributed to that and note that a more substantial and, and frankly, realistic uh, social cost of carbon that really reflects the damages of uh, the next ton of emissions is going to be critical to any future rulemakings uh, by the Biden administration or any future president. So I think this is just the fact that the this new number is out there and being used uh, and you know EPA is taking comment on it now uh, could be very important for future actions um, going forward. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a, such a, big development in the SCC over the last year and and certainly the impact lab and RFF have been you know major players there um, and it'll be interesting to watch also as science continues to evolve on the social cost of carbon as, as new damage sectors are added right because there are several important climate damages that we know are real <laughs> that aren't even included in the current social cost of carbon so it'll be really important to, to see how that evolves over time well, um, let's turn to the future. So we're, we've already talked about the future a little bit, but we've mostly been focused on things that have happened in 2022. I'd like to ask you now to uh, highlight something that you'll be watching closely in 2023. It might be something that connects to things we've already talked about, or it might be something brand new. Uh, John, why don't we start with you? Uh, sure. So a couple quick thoughts. The first is just, I actually think 2023 uh, is going to be a very consequential year for the US and climate change arguably as consequential or even more consequential than 2022 uh, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, I'll just note that the U.S. has a climate target of at least 50% below 2005 levels by 2030. Um, and in the best case scenario, IRA gets you to 42, right? So there's still a big gap. And the kinds of actions necessary to close that gap take time to put together, put in place, and enforce, uh, which means 2023, there's only seven years left here. Um, and it's going to be important for the federal government and for state action uh, to be quick and robust uh, on multiple fronts, um, including regulations and IRA implementation, a lot of other things. So I just want to say that this next year is going to be really, really critical, um, but kind of a longer term sleeper issue that I'm going to start really paying attention to in 2023 is the fact that you know the IRA in the United States takes cost off the table as a barrier to clean energy deployment. But we've known for a long time there are other barriers that have nothing to do with costs, like permitting and siting, like market structures, like lack of information or rational frameworks for decision-making by consumers, um, principal agent problems. You can go down the list of all these different non-cost barriers. And they've always been kind of there and kind of annoying but they've never been really in our face from a decarbonization perspective because cost was a bigger deal uh, with clean energy. And we had to get over that first. But now that the IRA removes cost as a factor, 
I actually think all of these other non-cost barriers are going to become much more real and much more of a substantial constraint, and there will be a much bigger need for policy response to deal with them if the U.S. is going to meet its targets and make the most of the uh, transformational aspects of the IRA. Yeah, that's so interesting. And and we've really been on the podcast lately, I think we've been honing in on some of those non-cost barriers, things like, you know, local concern about renewable siting, or, uh, you know, we talked to Emily Grubert a couple of weeks ago about sort of um, workforce challenges in the energy transition. Um, and so, yeah, those are going to be such important issues to watch. Catherine, what would you point to on this topic? Yeah, I guess a couple of thoughts. I definitely agree with John that where the rubber meets the road is actually implementing the IRA, and and we got to pay attention to to permitting and and siting. I think you know I'm going to be paying a lot of attention to the the trade and climate issues that I mentioned. To bring up one other topic that that we haven't touched on yet, I think if the IRA hadn't passed, I would have said that the most important thing is. Um, the the voluntary carbon markets, you know, climate finance, what, what whatever name you give it, but there's been a lot of activity in terms of corporate commitments and you know potentially a lot of private cash that, that's going into climate, and so I think figuring out how that actually will be used is going to be a key question going forward. Um, spec carry the the. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate Change, that's that's the SPEC acronym, announced at, at COP27 this idea of trying to, to channel some of the private cash to emerging market economies for their use in, in mitigating climate change. I think, you know, in principle, that's a, a great idea. I think where we really want to pay attention is how that gets used. I think that there's a, a lot of skepticism for, I think, a lot of in my mind, appropriate skepticism about offsets and people getting paid to do something that they would have done anyway. But, you know, I personally think that we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think there are some some good applications of, of offsets. And I think there's so much corporate money potentially going into that type of use that that we should we should pay attention to it and, and do what we can to make sure that it gets used effectively. Yeah, that's such a good point. Yeah, and there's there's so much money flowing to those efforts. One can imagine it going very badly, or or hopefully not so badly. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're short on time. So I'll, I'll ask each of you to try to answer this last one quickly. Um, you know, we've been talking mostly about federal and international issues uh, for most of this conversation, but I'm wondering if each of you have a particular state or local level issue that you are going to be watching closely this year. Um, Catherine, why don't we start with you? I think I would just come back to John's point about permitting and siting. I think those are, are tend to be local and, and state issues. I think the, the optimistic view is that a lot of the permitting and siting that needs to be done will be in red states, and, and those states tend to have quicker processes. But all of the modeling that I've seen suggests that it, those are, are really important issues to solve in order to get as much clean energy investment as, as we need to. Yeah. John, how about you? What will you be watching on a sort of state and local level? Uh, I will be watching electrification policy. Um, and what I, I mean that in a broad way, so not just vehicles, but also buildings, uh, you know, and there's, uh, I think folks are still kind of grasping for what the 
the kind of renewable portfolio standard equivalent is of of a, an electrification policy for say buildings or vehicles uh, meaning like a broad broadly accepted easily understood policy that a lot of states then adopt and uh you know there's been a lot of experimentation but no real uh kind of front runner yet and then there's just a lot of uh inertia in the policy system at the state level that doesn't necessarily um lend itself to electrification of end uses for example energy efficiency spending at the state level is largely fuel neutral for example um and incentivizing say a more efficient gas furnace instead of flipping over to heat pumps and uh you know again if the US is going to continue to accelerate its pace of decarbonization those kinds of factors are going to really need to get dealt with soon um and i think the states are the place where we're going to see a lot of that action yeah for sure and it's going to be so different across states just given politics and like climate uh you know climate issues um it, it's just uh yeah so much to watch well Catherine and john this has been a fascinating conversation i know we are only scratching the surface on like all of these topics and we could talk about them for hours and hours more but um we will uh i think call it a wrap now and let everyone get back to their holiday celebrations uh, but before we do i'd love to ask you each uh to recommend something uh that's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack that you think our audience would enjoy it could be related to the environment or even if it's kind of tangential um so john let's start with you what's at the top of your stack thanks uh, i'll be pretty directly connected to climate change here with um a podcast that i go to a lot uh called catalyst with shale khan from canary media and the reason why i bring it up here in this venue is uh there's a lot of new people coming into the climate space because of ira and other other developments and uh we get a lot of questions from folks externally around like well what are the most important things and how do i learn more about things and uh, i'll just say the catalyst podcast uh is Shale does a great job of diving pretty deep on each one of the key climate technologies or other factors uh related to decarbonization and comes at it from multiple different angles over time and is uh, as as technical as it can get it's still very clear and understandable and uh you know I do this every day working on these issues and I still learn something every time I I'm on there uh because they just there's just so much um that they cover so I just recommend to your audience for folks who are looking for like a slightly deeper dive on especially on the technology side of climate policy um catalyst with Shale Khan is a great resource yeah that's a great recommendation I'm I'm a regular listener of that podcast as well Catherine how about you what's at the top of your stack Sure. I'm I'm going to do the literal stack. Um, so I, I also, before I left for government, I did an annual energy book review as part of the Energy Institute at Haas blog. So I, I got the opportunity to dig into the year's books. I, I didn't do that this year. So I'm going to have to defer to my husband, who's a much more voracious reader than I am. Um, but he really liked the Catherine Blunt book about the PG&E uh, wildfire crisis, California burning. So I definitely have that at, at the top of my stack and look forward to reading that. Yeah, I remember your end of the year book blog, Catherine. Are they going to come back next year, you think? I don't know. Yeah, it, it depends. It's a it's a fair amount of work to be honest to, you know, do justice to a couple of books, but it it's a good incentive to um to really dig into the energy literature. Yeah. Well, I, I always love them. So, um I 
you know, selfishly, I hope you're able to, to get back to it. Um, but Thanks. in any case, um, Catherine Wolfram and John Larson, uh, you're both, uh, really gracious for spending all this time with us and sharing your expertise. We really appreciate it and, uh, wish you both happy holidays and happy new year. And, uh, thanks again for coming on resources radio. Thank you. Thanks. This was fun. You've been listening to resources radio, a podcast from resources for the future or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me. Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.